you are not going to do it alone. Not only can you not complete all the tasks alone, but you can't remind yourself that you deserve rest and care and resources on your own because the moment you watch TV or go out into the world or look at your phone, you're going to get reminded that you ought to have a perfect looking kitchen, that your children should never cry in public. You're going to get reminded all the ways that you fall short. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. We are so excited to dive into the all too familiar topics of stress and burnout with our guest, Amelia Nagoski. Amelia is an author, speaker, and conductor who holds a doctoral degree in music from the University of Connecticut. She wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle with her identical twin sister, Emily. The book contains science and stories for people, especially women who have felt exhausted and overwhelmed by everything they have to do, yet still they feel like I'm not doing enough. Amelia, we know one reason that you and your sister were inspired to write this book was your own life-threatening experience with stress. We would love if you told that story to our audience, including the physiological effects that stress can have on us that are very, very real. And what are the main lessons you came out of that experience with? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Because we wrote Burnout for me. It was the book that I needed when I was hospitalized with stress-induced illness. It was during my doctoral program at UConn, as you mentioned. And I had burned out before as a teacher, but that was pretty classic. And I kind of had been taught how that was going to go. But I didn't really know what was going on when I was getting my doctorate. I didn't feel burnt out. I felt like I was pushing really hard and I was really, really busy. And I love the academics. But boy, I just was wrestling with the, you know, my professors and the fact that I'm a woman who's a conductor. And to this day, no one else who is a woman has completed the doctorate in conducting at the University of Connecticut, not before or since me. So that might tell you something about how that program is for women. It was super stressful. And I started having abdominal pain. And it was so bad. I, I thought I was going to die. So um, we went to the emergency room and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. It kept me in the hospital four days, four days, because they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And finally, they were like, oh, it's just stress go home and relax. <laughs> and I was like, that solution is not helpful for me because I'm a full-time doctoral student working three part-time jobs and a stepmother to three teenagers, commuting 65 miles each way to my college campus. And like, just relax was not going to be a solution for me. And also it didn't take into account the fact that what had put me there, the stress, the thing was still going on. And and I had thought, oh, when I finish my doctorate, I'll be past that finish line, then I can relax. And then, but um, I wasn't going to make it to that finish line. So all this happened. And my identical twin sister, Emily Nagoski, PhD, is the New York Times bestselling author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. Available everywhere. She and I both communicate through peer-reviewed science. <laughs> That's our love language. So when I was in the hospital, Emily just brought me stacks of research about like what stress does to your body and, and how to actually heal from stress. And the science that she brought me was so disparate and so far flung from each other that I was like, no wonder people don't understand this. You know, people like Emily who have PhDs in, you know, public health, learn about how the body works and interacts with like larger scale social systems. But none of us have access to that information. And it was so helpful. Emily, it turned, of course, I knew already had written Come As You Are with all that sex science. But it has like a half a chapter about stress and managing your feelings. And that was the stuff that women around the world had told her was their favorite thing in the book. And 
I realized that the experience I was having and the experience that Emily had talking to women about Come As You Are were the same and that the information that she was writing about in a larger scale was the stuff that was saving me from this pain in my body, which I ended up back in the hospital again a year later. But by then I was already on the road to really learning about the stuff that was going to heal me longer term. And that was 2011. And I haven't burned out since not even through the pandemic. Oh my gosh. And thankfully, Emily included that chapter. I was on Instagram yesterday. My friend who's a sex therapist, her name is Vanessa. She had a slide in her Instagram story that said that sex drive is actually a luxury. I'm just going to go ahead and step on Emily's soapbox here. Sex is not a drive. If there's a sex therapist saying that sex is a drive, they need to re-examine the language they're using. I am not qualified to say this. I'm just saying the thing that I know that Emily would be shouting from the rooftops. Yeah. And I think that was kind of her point is like, also, though, if our bodies aren't taken care of, if we're a stress ball, we're probably not going to want these things that we don't like absolutely need. So I just thought it was really interesting for that to all like make so much sense together and for that to be the chapter that everyone kind of honed in on. I do want to back up and just make sure for Emily's sake that we're not saying that people need sex to survive because we don't. We do need human well, we need some kind of connection to survive. I don't want to be framing this too much in terms of like the language of sex, because that's a very specific thing I have learned from Emily's soapboxes. And just don't want to exclude anyone who's like asexual or is unable to have sex for, you know, a variety of medical reasons. So that's what I said is that sex isn't needed. So people aren't going to even desire it if they're in a state of like frenetic life. Yeah. Seeking pleasure is exactly the opposite. Like, okay, so I talked about how at UConn I was facing conflict with my professors because of the difference between who I was and who they really thought should be doing the work that I was doing, which was, you know, basically a white man (laughs) should be doing the work that a conductor does. So this friction in this kind of like existential sort of trouble, stressor, means that the people who I'm working with do not want me to have access to pleasure or fun. It's considered like extra or bonus if you get a full night's sleep. And it's considered kind of honorable and noble to be sleep deprived when being sleep deprived is actually dangerous, not just for you, but for people around you, puts you in a terrible mood. Anyway, what I'm saying is the intersection of physical symptoms and the things that society expects in particular of women do not overlap. There's a chasm between those two things. So for me, the physical symptoms were, yes, I had trouble with my sleep. Yes, I had depression and anxiety worse than it ever had in my life before. And yes, I had physical pain in my abdomen. The thing is that my physical symptoms in particular don't, you know, really matter because the thing is that when you, your body experiences stress, it has a kind of a generic stress response that it can respond with. And that's the one we evolved with in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness when the things that caused us stress had teeth and claws and could run 40 Mm -hmm. miles an hour. And if a thing has teeth and claws and can run 40 miles an hour, the thing you need to do in order to survive that is fight or flight, right? So, you respond with fight or flight, you run away from this lion, and you're running, and you're jumping, and you're climbing, and you're leaping, and you hide in the cleft of the rock. And you can see from your place of safety that the lion has given up, and it's walking away, and you have survived. And how did you survive? You did the things that your nervous system told you to do, to run. And why were you so capable of running faster than you've ever run in your whole life just at that particular moment? Because your body prepared you to do that by shutting down or at least pushing away and reducing the systems that are not necessary. So, for example, yes, your respiratory system increases in its effort, your circulatory system increases in its effort, but your cognition, for example, does not increase. You do not become smarter and a better thinker when you are under severe stress. Actually, you go into a kind of tunnel vision where you can only see what's right in front of you because the effort of processing all external information from wider sources is unnecessary energy to spend. So you just narrow your focus to what you need to know right here, right now. 
your immune system also is like, you know what, we're running from this lion. So like, who cares about malaria until we get away from this lion, mm -hmm. your reproductive systems like, yeah, yeah, we need babies eventually. But like, we don't need to worry about that right now. Let's go ahead and take a back seat. So when we're under chronic stress, these symptoms do these same things. So we feel a decreased sense of accomplishment and connection to the world when we're burned out because of that tunnel vision. We get, you know, chronic digestive inflammation, for example, when we're under chronic stress because our digestive system never gets to go back to that state where it feels calm and steady. It's always in this state of readiness to, you know, fight or flee. Mm. And yeah, although there's not a lion chasing us, the stressors at home or the big project at work or the kid that just asks your name over and over and over again, <laughs> it's, it's these stress or these stressors that manifest into these physical symptoms. And anybody who tells a woman to calm down in the moment, like we all know that doesn't work. But I think through this interview today, we're going to find some of those tangible examples that we can learn to calm our body down so that we aren't in that fight, flight, freeze response, and we can figure out what's going to work well for us. You had mentioned two words there, though. You had talked about stressors and stress, and we know that we all experience both of them. But what is the difference between those two and which is the more important one to focus in on? The stress is a cycle that happens in your body. It's the physiological changes in response to the stressor. The stressor is the it's something stressor. It's stressor, but it's it's spelled with an O. Anyway, the stressor is the thing that's outside of you that your body perceives as a potential threat. And it can be anything you see, touch, hear, smell, or like imagine that might be dangerous to you that will set up the stress itself, which is the cycle that's happening in your body. Oh, and which is the most important? Neither one is more important than the other necessarily. I mean, it depends is the answer. <laughs> the answer to almost everything is it depends. But the stressors, like I was saying, oh, I'll worry about my stress after I finish my degree, thinking that if I solve the thing that's causing my stress, that then the stress in my body will go away. And that's just not true because fight and flight are not how you finish a degree program, right? Fight and flight are not how you deal with a rude customer. Fight and flight is not how you deal with a very frustrating child, right? You gotta be nice, you gotta smile, you gotta stand in line and fill out forms. That's how we actually solve most of the stressors in our life. So the thing to do, that's the important part, is to separate dealing with the thing that caused your stress from dealing with the stress in your body. So allowing your body to go through the cycle of fight and flight or otherwise to tell it that it is safe. The world is a safe place. It does not have to be on alert right now or all the time. We do want to deal with the things that cause us stress. We have to deal with the things that cause us stress. But we don't have to wait for those things to be solved before we start to feel better. Yeah, and this is something that I have learned from your teaching, something we talked about right before the interview started, is that the idea that a lot of women are walking around with incomplete stress cycles. So I want you to explain this subject to our audience. How do you complete a stress cycle? Why is it so important? And as I was telling you, what I love is that you guys give us these really concrete examples that are a little bit different. Different. You know, we've all heard go work out. And like sometimes busy women are like, I can't also do that. So I can't wait for you to talk about stress cycles. Okay. There are so many things that complete a stress response cycle. I think there's like 12 in the book. So, I mean, obviously I can't talk about all 12, but I can talk about some of the favorites. And yeah, physical activity is at the top of the list. At a population level, physical activity is the most effective way to complete the stress response cycle. That's not true for every individual. Like Emily and I are identical twin sisters raised in the same household and Emily's a natural exerciser and the natural exercisers in the audience are going to be like, yeah, when I go for a run, I know I'm going to feel better. I'm going to come home and I feel like I conquered the world. And that's Emily. She's known since she was in adolescence that, you know, she could hop on her bike and go for a ride through the hills of Pennsylvania and reach the crest of the hills with the farmland and the cows and the clouds in the sky. And she feels at one with it all. And I like thought that she was making that up because I 
genetically identical, raised in the same household, have never had that experience with physical activity. So at a population level, yes, most people are going to be like, yeah, I get a good workout and I feel much better. Your body has a chance to actually do the fight and the flight to get to the end of that, you know, physiological cycle and do the thing that it's meant to do with the stress response. So you get to the end and you're like, yeah, either you feel like really powerful or maybe you feel really calm. So whatever it is for you, you might know already if physical activity is effective for you. It is for most people. But of course, it's more complicated than that. As you were saying, a lot of women are like, I don't have time for that, which is a whole other question of do we? have time? Why don't we have time for a thing we need for our well-being? But there's also a lot of people for whom it's just not that effective, people who don't have access to it because of, you know, physical abilities, or people who don't have access to it because you might live in a neighborhood where you're like, yeah, I'm going to go for a walk and just like let it all go. And then you get catcalled on that walk. And now this walk that was supposed to help you manage your stress has now become a source of stress. It's just not as easy as physical activity will help you manage your stress because the world is not that simple. But the good news is there's so many other things that can complete the stress response cycle. The next one, and probably the most important, is a good night's sleep. (laughs) And Mm. if people don't change anything about their lives and they just want to pick one thing to do, let it be getting more sleep, adequate sleep. There are lots of things people generally already know about sleep. You know, you need seven to nine hours. It's not eight hours. It's not strictly seven to nine. It's a window that needs to be like an average over the course of a week or a month. And yeah, it's the most important thing because sleep deprivation makes you a more dangerous driver. It makes you a testier, less patient parent and employee and coworker and romantic partner. It's so important. It slows down all the other functions in your body when you're sleep deprived. So like if you're going to work out, you better get some sleep. If you are not well rested, please do not work out because it will damage your body and you won't have the energy to heal it. So sleep. People ask us all the time, what's more important, sleep or exercise? It's just not even a close call. It's sleep, 100%. So if you're tired, probably what you need is more sleep almost every time. Now, if you are getting more than nine hours of rest and you don't feel well rested, then seek professional medical advice. But if you're getting less than nine hours of sleep on average a night and you don't feel rested, probably what you need is more sleep. Well, it's really interesting because for me, I have told people before, it's like my family kind of always teased me because I'm like an eight and a half to nine hour same woman, here. Yep. But I know that's what I need. I can literally feel Good. that's what I need. My husband doesn't need as much sleep. That's fine. But I know this is what I need. So I don't want to go short on it because like that's when I feel good. So I think it's about really, like you said, like knowing where you fall on that continuum. Yeah. And then the other thing is, like I told you before the interview, it's like we're talking to a bunch of women that have very small children. So I was wondering if you have any advice because I know sometimes just like how the exercise tip is, you know, frustrating to some people. When we're talking to this audience, sometimes they're like, my child wakes me up two times a night. Like they're frustrated with that advice because they feel like they can't accomplish it. Do you have anything to say on if it is a little disrupted, kind of how to manage? Sure. It depends on how disrupted it is and for how long. Overall, my advice for a mother with a child is that you're not supposed to be raising a child alone and that in heterosexual couples it is overwhelmingly the woman who is expected to get up and sacrifice their sleep to anyone else's well-being so if you have a partner who is not sharing that burden with you that is a larger systemic problem because one of the things that could help you get more sleep is by someone else sacrificing their sleep and sort of spreading out the deficit across multiple people. But in general, if you're getting segmented sleep, what you really need is four hours in a row is the bare minimum of what's going to help you feel well rested. If you can't get a four hour chunk, you're going to suffer the most. So if you're getting a four hour chunk here and a two hour chunk there and a two hour chunk somewhere else, you're going to be fine as long as you're finding it somewhere. 
And there is also truth in the idea that when you are a parent or taking care of an elderly parent, or if you have a sick dog, like there just are going to be times when you are up in the middle of the night and it's going to be several weeks of just not getting the sleep you need or even several months. And this is a really unfortunate side effect of the kind of isolation that we experience in contemporary living. It's supposed to take a village, right? And we don't mm -hmm. have access to a village, most of all. And this is why that Emily and I say that the cure for burnout is not self-care. I can tell you all the tips and tricks in the world about how to get a great night's sleep, but it's not going to happen unless we live in a world where the wife in the household is the only one expected to sacrifice her sleep on the altar of everyone else's comfort and convenience. Let's take a quick break from our podcast sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp has online services that can help with the big, heavy topics that we're talking about on today's episode. Burnout, self-compassion, not taking care of yourself, not even listening to your needs or the voice that's inside of you. you. Guys, these are real things. These are things that are plaguing us as women, as mothers, as human beings. And it's something that sometimes we've done everything that we can. We've done everything that we can. And the next step is seeking professional help, which is why Amy and I both love our services through BetterHelp. You can use a chat feature. You can go on a walk and just talk with your therapist. You can do a video feature where you're actually talking to the person as he or she guides you through the next steps and the right prompts to help get you out of these feelings of burnout. So if you're trying to take your mental health seriously and you know the next step is getting professional help, BetterHelp has given our listeners 10% off their very first month by going to betterhelp.com slash herself. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash herself for 10% off your very first month. Now back to our show. Mm, yeah, that was such an important point. And I know it can be hard, but just easily, you need four hour chunks. It's One what continuous four hour chunk. Yeah. So if that baby is waking up and, you know, it's your partner that takes that turn, it's so smart to share that load. One thing that we've realized, especially in this pandemic world, is that the term burnout has gained a ton of traction over the past few years. We know that you guys are the experts in this area. So we wanted to know, how do you define burnout and how can people know if it's something that they are experiencing? The important thing to know about burnout is that it's not a medical diagnosis and it's not a mental illness. It's a condition that arises out of a disconnect between who you are and who the world expects you to be like in a workplace environment for example it might be that they're setting goals that are unattainable for you or it could be that you're a parent and the, the goal of parenting is potentially a completely unobtainable goal if your goal is raise this child to be a wonderful human being until they're 18 years old and they're 18 months old right now. Like that kind of goal setting is going to feel very distant and unattainable and it's going to lead to burnout. We define it in the book as the feeling of being overwhelmed and exhausted and yet still worried that somehow you're not doing enough. So if that kind of rings true for you, you are probably already experiencing burnout. It's, it's just everywhere all the time now. The ways that it's studied by like the World Health Organization, etc., they're responsible for kind of studying government policies to prevent that, you know, the setting of unattainable goals so that workers are not stressed by things that are impossible, right? Setting a reasonable number of working hours and allowing people to have breaks so that they don't get overwhelmed and making sure that policies allow people to get adequate sleep. But unfortunately, the WHO can't make the world a place where the United States gives full legal autonomy to women. So unfortunately, we have to live in this constant state of unregulated stressors all the time. But because we can deal with them, you know, in separate process from dealing with our stressors, we can manage. Have I gone too far astray? 
it's the disconnect, right? Like it's the disconnect between us and society It's the disconnect between us and what our body is actually asking from us. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned right away in your very first answer about how you felt like you could keep on going. You felt like you were doing the right thing. You felt like you could go until all of a sudden you had stomach pain and were in the hospital for four days. So many women can relate to that. Yeah. You think you can just keep going. You think I can get by, I can get through. And it, some people are gifted the way my sister is gifted. Again, we are genetically identical twins raised in the same household. And she has a, a hyper awareness of her body's signals and her internal experience where she's so well informed about what her body's going through that it would probably never escape her for so long. And I am on the total opposite end of that spectrum. And I have like a clinically limited capacity to notice my internal experience. I mean, it's actually a condition called alexithymia, which like 10% of the population has where we just can't. Am I hungry? I don't know. Am I, mm -hmm. do I have to pee? I don't know. Like ask me how I feel. I, I just, I, I don't know what even our feelings. If you have this condition or if you just are on the kind of far end of the spectrum where you're like, I'm not sure like what my body is telling me. You're telling me to listen to my body. What does that even mean? It is a learnable skill. I am so happy to tell you. Mm -hmm. And I know because I learned it. It's a learnable skill to listen to your body and figure out what the signals are. But the truth is a lot of us are walking around much more sleep deprived, much more burned out, much more stressed than we're even aware of. Because systems like our immune system and our reproductive system and even our cognition, we may not be aware of the ways that they've already been impacted by those chronically stuck old stress cycles still sitting around unprocessed since our eighth grade bully. Yeah, that resonates so much with me. Amy and I are nodding our heads over here because Amy can literally look at her schedule or just look at her life and be like, I need a workout right now without even having the outside world tell her yes. what she needs. Yeah. When I have been conditioned for many, many years to be like, nope, work through it, work past it, get that done. And then you can have it, earn your rest, earn your break. And no. I can also tell you that it is learned because these last three years, I mean, it took my body shutting down. I didn't end up in the hospital for four days, but I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism. And the yep. number yep. one thing that my doctor kept on saying is, is, Abby, you can take these supplements, you can take these prescriptions, but until you let your body rest, yes. none of it is going to work. Exactly. So it can be learned. Oh, it's not easy I'm so practice. glad your doctor yes. told you that. Good doctors can work some wonders here. But let's go into this a little bit more because we want to prevent burnout, right? And we know that taking care of ourselves with exercise and sleep and rest, that plays a role, but we also know that's only part of the story. So we would love to know your thoughts on the other factors. I mean, even other people, society, et cetera, that play into women thriving, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally. Yeah. This is where we needed to write a new book because <laughs> there are already books about the physical stress. It feels so important and so validating to recognize that it's not all under your control. Women aren't stressed out because they're not trying to do the right thing. We're all trying all the time to be the best we can be for ourselves and for our communities. It's not that we aren't trying hard enough. It's that the system has failed us and denied us access. Because so say I get that nine hours of sleep right and I go into work and I tell my coworker, wow, Jane, <laughs> I just got nine hours of sleep and I feel amazing. And Jane says back to me, oh, you got nine hours of sleep. Well, I was up till, you know, 3 a.m. baking cupcakes for Becky's birthday party. But when the world is a place where the thing that is good for you is kind of derided. And we call it in the book human giver syndrome. Being a human giver sounds like a great thing, and it is a great thing. If you think of a giver as someone who feels obligated to give their time and their lives and their bodies to other people in service, that would be a great way to build a society if everyone was like that. No one would burn out if everyone had someone near them who would turn and look at what they need and say, you need a break. You go take a bath and I will make dinner. I'll bring you a glass of wine. And then afterwards, we can sit on the couch and talk about our feelings. No one would burn out because there'd always be someone else there to give to them. But unfortunately, we live in a world that has constructed a system that burns out only part of the population because some people instead of feeling an obligation to give and care for others, some people are told that it's their moral obligation to take, to acquire whatever resources are necessary for them to 
be their best selves. This comes from a book by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And as she posits this world of human beings who have a moral obligation to be their humanity and human givers who have a moral obligation to give their humanity, which one do you think she's saying the women are? Yeah, it's the, the human givers. givers. Yeah, it's the givers. <laughs> but of course, this is like a black and white cartoon illustration. And indeed, there are women who fall on the being side in certain circumstances and men who fall on the giver's side. Both Emily and I are married to men, white men who are natural givers. So it's not just like, a, you know, we all hate men. It's a matter of like the system has been set up to teach some people that they are entitled to the time and lives and bodies of others so that people who feel that natural kind of human instinct to give and share with their community are exploited and so this gets in the way of us being able to feel like we even deserve resources or care because we feel like we have a moral obligation to give and to take at any time is a violation of our moral obligation and that system where the givers well, where women <laughs> turn against each other instead of genuinely asking for help or celebrating the resources that other people receive, that system of exploitation is how the system perpetuates and keeps going and makes it worse. And the solution is to turn toward each other and our uncomfortable feelings with kindness and compassion instead of competitiveness and contempt. A quick break from our longtime sponsor, Gooder. By now, you guys know that we are obsessed with these sunglasses. One thing that I like is that there's so many different varieties that you are sure to find one that not only fits your own face, but also your own style. The nice thing about the website is that you can do a virtual try-on to really make sure that you like what you pick. I love a lot of their top sellers and a new one that I have my eye on is Ninja Kick the Damn Rabbit. Kind of a crazy name, but a really cool frame. So I think that you guys might like it. They are also always doing really cool collaborations. Right now they have a National Parks line, which if you're like Abby and I and you like to visit the National Parks, you might find one that you really like. You can go to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com, and use the code HERSELF15 for 15% off your first order. Again, that's gooder.com and HERSELF15 for 15% off your first order. Mm. That was such an interesting answer for me because I've definitely experienced that in my life as Abby referenced, like I am a person that takes really good care of myself because I've seen how helpful it is. And yeah. I do get a lot of backlash for that. And it's kind of surprising, but what you said like makes it make sense. I wanted to ask you a question and I am going to give you a case study of just one couple, <laughs> but burnout does it happen to men? Do they experience it differently? And here's the case study is over the past couple years, my partner and I, we are in a heterosexual relationship. I have expected more of him because I kind of went down the road of like me carrying so much of the load, me being the giver. And I realized like, this isn't going to work. You know, we have three small children now, like I need you to step up a lot more. And he has done that. Like he does that. But what I've noticed is that it's very, very hard for him. Like he is overwhelmed. He seems like he does get burnt out of parenting. So like, it's this interesting circumstance of me realizing, nope, like we're going to change this. This is going to be a partnership in which you have to carry a big load to help me not get burnt out. But then it looks like he's having a very hard time with it. One of the things that's going to interfere with asking a man is going to be that he has not been raised to believe that he has an obligation to give necessarily. And even at the time, like my husband is a natural giver, but can I tell you that when he retired and I was working full time and I joked with him, it's kind of nice. It's like having a wife, you know, at home to take care of the house for me. He was so offended. And I was like, um, what is about being a wife that you think is offensive? Cause I'm a wife. And if you think that's offensive, that says pretty negative things about yeah. what women are. And 
the idea of being relegated to a woman's role has this negative because we all understand that women do not have full legal bodily autonomy in the United States. We are not treated as, you know, full citizens. We experience more discrimination and harassment and relationship violence that there is, you know, that we live in a patriarchy. It is easier to access systems of power as a man. And therefore, it's preferable to be masculine in the large scale society. So when a man is asked to do the things that are associated with women, it's treated as shameful. So not only is he dealing with doing the actual work of parenting and homekeeping, which is very frustrating, and very difficult work. He's probably also working a little bit with like, you know, changing his mindset about what it means that he has picked up these duties and he is this different person now. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. And like, you know, when you dig deeper and I look at his parents, like his mom is such a giving woman to this day. Like she would do anything for her kids, for her grandkids. And so like the relationship that was demonstrated to him for his whole life is much different than the relationship I'm asking him to be in right now. Yeah. And so I keep telling myself though, I'm like, I'm okay with this. I'm okay that there's some friction and that there's some stress being displaced. Cause honestly, it feels like it's, you know, kind of coming off of me and putting onto him. And I still deal with the stress of parenting and managing a household too, but I'm just asking for it to be more shared which seems like a very reasonable thing to ask. And yet so many relationships, so many partnerships struggle to find that balance. And yet overcoming the expectations that we all got when we were raised is a barrier that often goes unacknowledged. So help us get there because we have had a lot of experts on the podcast talking about our children and how we can let them feel their emotions. And we're on board with that. But then when it comes to us as women, as mothers, as human beings, all of a sudden that just goes right out the window. And we don't put ourselves first. We don't put in the effort. We don't listen to if we're hungry, like you had mentioned. We don't go to sleep when there's dishes in the sink because the dishes need to be done first. So let's get really tangible with our audience right now. Like, How can we have this self-awareness? to avoid things like burnout. And let's figure out how we can do that on this podcast. I mean, obviously we're not gonna solve all the issues right now, but let's give like steps that our audience can do to start learning that right now. Thing one is you are not gonna do it alone. Not only can you not complete all the tasks alone, but you can't remind yourself that you deserve rest and care and resources on your own because the moment you watch TV or go out into the world or look at your phone, you're going to get reminded that you ought to have a perfect looking kitchen, that your children should never cry in public. You're going to get reminded all the ways that you fall short, right? you're too fat, you're too brown, your skin isn't clear enough. We're all going to get these messages immediately of the ways that we fall short and are not enough and don't deserve care and resources and sleep and love and connection until we conform to that very narrow, socially constructed ideal. The only thing that's going to help that is other people. We call it in the book, the bubble of love. It's, it's people who care about your well-being as much as you care about theirs. And they surround you and remind you and protect you from outside forces and messages telling each other that, no, 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 you don't have to comport to that expectation because it's so difficult to resist that large scale overwhelming force that's telling you that, oh, this is how other people are doing. This is how uh, everyone else looks and behaves. This is what their lives are like and your life should be like this too. It is impossible to resist it alone. It's like trying to stand up against a tsunami. It's just not going to happen. We all have to work together to protect each other, to remind each other that we deserve those resources. So step one, enlist help. Get yourself the bubble of love of the people around you who care about your well-being as much as you care about theirs and enlist their help in reminding you that, yo, th those dishes do not have to get done. It's fine. Your kitchen does not have to be clean before you go to bed. It's okay. The world will keep spinning. Your children will still grow up to be lovely human beings. And the rest of the advice that I have is less practical. It's more of dealing with the stress that you feel in your body so that no matter what 
the stressors are, no matter what the messages that's coming to you that you need to like resist, you'll have the capacity to do that because you're not drained of all your emotional and physical resources. So doing the things that complete the stress response cycle, we already talked about sleep and physical activity, but there's also connection with other people, which relates directly to the bubble of love, which is both, as I was saying, a practical step to take to reduce, you know, how deeply you feel the disconnect between who you are and who the world expects you to be, but also just mere co-presence, just the presence of someone you love can make you feel more safe to remind you that you don't have to be on guard because they are here too. Another one is creative self-expression, making a thing, singing a song, doing a dance, telling a story, playing an instrument, sculpting, knitting, carving, cooking, making of any kind can also complete the stress response cycle. But again, like sleep and physical activity, we're not going to remember that we deserve to take the time to go do that if we are being constantly barraged by those messages that say we don't deserve it. That answer made so much sense to me. Two things really stuck out. When you telling us like we actually do need to be in community, we need to be loved. It's like we talk to this audience every week and the feedback we get, it's so hard for them to make the time to have those connections that sometimes that's the thing that they're leaving out. And Abby and I are always like, we're in a text chain with another one of our friends and we're constantly supporting each other. Like we'll just send things like, oh, I'm traveling this week for work. Like, you know, I'm just feeling guilty like to my partner because I know I'm leaving him with so much to do. And then we come alongside and support each other. And then we see each other in person all the time. It's like, we really believe that you need this village. You know, we help each other out. So I just wanna again say how important that is. And then second, I was listening to your sister on a podcast while I was DIYing my bathroom. Mm -hmm. And she was saying the same thing you just said, cause I was like, why is this DIY project of me painting? Why does this feel so good right now? Yeah. Like, yeah. I didn't even know I liked painting. And like, all of a sudden I'm like, I love this. I feel so good right now. Like it felt so good to roll up my sleeves, roll that paint on and like finish a project that I could just, now I see it all the time. It's like my bathroom became more calm, but it's like also something that I did. I was like, I wonder if that's why a lot of women like DIY so much is because like you're doing something and it feels so good. Yeah. And there are areas where women feel more permission to do that than men and areas where men feel permission mm. to use creative self-expression. In general, men are given less access to it. They feel sort of shamed if they're going to cook for fun, less and less these days. Yeah. But, you know, but we all can still kind of feel where gender roles sit in. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, DIY, not only does that kind of project fulfill the need of creative self-expression and letting you like say something about yourself and make a thing that changes your experience of the world but it also it's kind of a twofer because it also harnesses this brain system that's called the well never mind we call it the monitor it's called the criterion velocity uh, <laughs> feedback loop and like you don't need to know any of that everybody just falls asleep we say it's called the little monitor it loves when you complete tasks that are like a little bit challenging, but like, you know, you can succeed. So setting goals that you can accomplish and accomplishing them, we call it do a thing. And it is the most helpful thing when you feel stuck by like overwhelming stressors that you cannot control, like a global pandemic, systemic misogyny, like, we're not going to solve those problems. I'm so sorry to say this. We're not going to solve those problems in our lifetime maybe our grandkids will be a lot closer to solving those problems. All we can do is take little baby steps to help progress move forward. And that's extremely frustrating. So if we want to get our brains out of the frustration state, do a thing, like accomplish a task, paint a wall, exactly, like build a shelf. That's exactly the kind of thing that's going to be great. Not only for the creative self-expression part, but of the like, I accomplished something and made change in my little corner of the world. Yay! Yeah. And it just like also refreshes you so that you can get back up and do the small things that we can all do to help. Yes. I wanted to go back to the idea of human giver syndrome for one question, mm -hmm. because, you know, I think that it just makes sense to so many of us. 
We've seen, you know, maybe our mothers demonstrate it. Also, we have a lot of women listening that are in caregiving careers, like nurses, teachers. So like they're experiencing this at an all-time high. And one thing that we start to think about when you talk about the next generation and the generation after that is what we're demonstrating to our kids. And for more of us to start to move away from like having to be the only giver in the household, we believe is really important. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak on that and how you can start to give yourself permission to not just be like giving outwards at every opportunity. You need to feel permission to accept help. You need to feel worthy of help and resources. And that can be a hard thing to remember and to implement because there are so many messages telling you that you have to earn it, that you have to be good enough, that you have to conform, that you have to be in the middle of the herd. So I'm just going to tell you right now, you deserve care just as you are. You don't have to lose weight or come out of the closet or get married or get divorced or have a kid before you deserve it. You don't have to be paler or your skin doesn't have to be any better. You don't have to tone up. You don't have to do anything. You, as you are right now, you are already good enough. You are worthy of love and resources as you are. And you deserve help. You deserve support. You deserve change. So if you believe that, and if you can be reminded of that on any kind of regular basis to help you remember, it's going to give you access to so much more help because the main thing to remember is that if you think you need more grit, what you actually need is help, right? And if you're like, oh, if only I could persist, I could push through this. What you actually need is more kindness. You need access to people who will grant you that kindness. And what's totally going to blow your mind is to remember that the people around you who are like, they just need more grit. (laughs) What they need is help too. Or if you think, oh, they just need more persistence. They actually need more kindness too. And when we start to see the world this way and the people around us start to see the world this way, I know this doesn't feel practical, but it actually is because when we turn toward each other with kindness and compassion, and you were saying before that people let the connections slide because it feels like they don't have time, but it actually turns out that when we turn toward each other and we have these profound supportive connections with each other, it creates energy for most of us, connecting with people we love doesn't drain us of energy. Even if we are giving them our compassion and our energy and our time, it's not a net loss. It's a net gain. It creates energy. Does that help? Mm, It helps so much. And one thing I really want to just shine a light on is being reminded of it often. So whether it's something as simple as a sticky note in your car or on your bathroom mirror, if it's a notification that goes off on your phone, if it's a tattoo, I mean, whatever it is, knowing that you're worthy at your core, that is something that I work with. And we talk to people in our DMs every day about of, I don't feel worthy of this. I don't think that I need to accept this. Like I am not in a position to, yes, you are. And the second piece here is check in on your strong friends. Like that's one thing that I wish I would have known a long, long time ago is to check in on your strong friends because sometimes they can put up such, you know, just this block of, I can do it. I'm doing it. I'm going forward. And sometimes just reaching out and saying, Hey, can I drop off a coffee? It can open up that bond and that connection that you had just brought up in that answer. Exactly. That is exactly it. You illustrated it perfectly. Mm. This self-compassion thing, we know that it's so important. We are trying to incorporate it into our lives, but sometimes (laughs) it can be such a challenge. Like, you know this, it can be such a challenge. And you talk about this a lot in your book. So share with our audience right now, why is this thing called self-compassion so difficult for us? And we're women who want to live our best lives. So how can we start to incorporate it even on the small, small levels? Self-compassion is the act of turning toward yourself with kindness and compassion. I was just going on and on about how turning toward each other with kindness and compassion creates energy. It's actually, for most people, easier to turn towards someone else's pain than to turn toward their own. And a lot of that is wrapped up into like, oh, I don't deserve my own compassion, but but you do. So we like to tell people to personify that that negative voice in their head, that thing that's telling them that, you know, you don't meet up to the standards that are being set for you and you can't rest until you've achieved this goal. That 
critical voice that comes to all of us at some point in our lives that's trying to get us to conform, to fit into the herd, because that's going to keep us safe. According to our evolutionary heritage, where's the safest place to be in a herd? The middle. When the lion comes, it's the people on the fringes who are going to be most at risk. So there's this voice in our head that's trying to keep us in the middle, to keep us belonging, to keep us safe, to make sure that the people around us recognize that we deserve protection because that's how it thinks it's going to survive. And instead of ignoring that voice, which is there's kind of this popular notion that, oh, you just, you know, ignore that negative voice and like kick it out of your head and you don't need that. Like, mm, that voice is there for a reason. It's not there by accident. It's trying to keep you safe. So if you listen to it, and remember, we call it the mad woman in the attic, because that voice is not very well informed, right? That voice is still trying to keep you alive on the savannah of Africa. And it does not know about, you know, Instagram and the fact that, you know, half of your feed is, you know, skinny models and perfect vacation homes and that that's the herd that you're being told exists. That little voice inside you doesn't know about that. So if you can turn toward that voice and say, hey, I hear you. You're trying to protect me by getting me in the middle of the herd, but but I, I don't actually, that's not really my herd. I know what it is, and it's not what I see around me. It's what I believe inside myself is supposed to be right. It's what the people in my bubble remind me is supposed to be right. And so if you keep listening past the words that the voice says, the ideas that the voice has, what you'll hear is the frantic fear and frustration that that voice has because these demands that have been set for us by the external world are just unceasing. The goals are unmeetable. And this frustration and this rage leads to this pain and this sadness and this grief that you'll never meet that goal. And you can tell that voice, hey, again, we don't have to meet that goal to be safe. But wow, thank you so much for doing that work for me, for trying to protect me. I hear you and, and I just want to let you know that I'm a grown up now and I've made my own choices and I've surrounded myself with people who are my real herd. So you change your relationship with self-criticism to be one of compassion instead of conflict. I loved that answer because you literally said to address that voice. And I think as women, a lot of us are shoving that voice down or just plain out believing the voice. Exactly. And it's like addressing it is actually, you know, our adult selves need to learn how to do that. So Amelia, this interview has just been chock full with amazing information. Thank you so much for coming on. We would love it if you let everyone know where they could find more of you. The project I'm working on right now is I was diagnosed with autism about a year ago. Both Emily and I were and autistic burnout is a real problem. And autistic people are saying there's no resources for autistic people about burnout. So I have a YouTube channel called Autistic Burnout, connecting the ways that the stuff we put in the book also applies to people with autism so interesting. And I've seen you start to share about that. And I think it's just going to help so much of the population that has been feeling alone in those titles and with those diagnoses. So thank you again so much. And this is just the reminder to those who are listening to take yourself seriously. Start listening to that voice inside of you. Start listening to what your needs are because you won't be able to show up in this world as anything less than your best, even as a mediocre version of yourself <laughs> until you start taking this thing called burnout seriously and figuring out what your needs truly are. So thanks again so much for being on today. Thank you.